Author Stephen Schrader grew up in Manhattan. His family spent a chunk of time in Washington Heights before moving further uptown to an apartment on Central Park West. Schrader's father was a big shot in the dressmaking business. In fact, when he died at the ripe old age of 100, the New York Times called him a king of 7th Avenue fashion. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Stephen Schrader reflects on his childhood, including his relationship with his somewhat distant father, in his new book called Threads. He's with us in the studio this morning. Stephen, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. Threads, more stories from a New York life. Yes, the subtitle is More Stories from a New York Life. Now, emphasis there on the more. So you have talked about your life before in books. Yes, about five years ago was another book, What We Deserve, Stories from a New York Life. And the format's a little different on this, but it's basically the same thing, little pieces and form a mosaic into a life, I, I hope. Who's in the photo on the cover of this book? That's actually my father and mother, and it's in their grand apartment on Central Park West, which we moved to from a four-room apartment in Washington Heights, where we had lived till I was about 14. And that was my mother and, and father sitting there, and they're a little distant. I hope it's suggested this was a very formal place. I, I sort of thought of us as... Later on, at least, as we grew up in the world materially, we were upwardly dysfunctional because my father became more successful and uh, was out of the house more, and my mother was home. And part of the story is I was with her growing up, maybe not in a great way. Your dad was in the dressmaking business. Yes, he had originally been a contractor, and that's the one who has the machines that sews the dresses, uh, cuts the fabric, sews the dresses, and he would get work from the manufacturers, the one who designed it. And and he was an immigrant from Poland. He would have to go through the back door and plead with the production man for work. And then uh, he did become a very big contractor, and during the war made uh, uniforms for for wax, for the wax uh, ladies in, in, in in the armed service. And then became finally a manufacturer in about 1950 when he was 50 years old. And his life started all over again in some ways. He became uh, a man about town and uh, slowly worked up into being kind of a celebrity. And he lived to 100, so he had a a long, full life. He hung out with the likes of Lyndon Johnson, right? Yes, Johnson came up to the factory, often the... uh, the Lady Garment Workers Union used my father as a place to to go to, and Johnson came up. Humphrey was a good friend of his. My father would go to the White House. They would mention him in speeches. He was, the, for them, the American success story, and he was very proud of it. He would let you know that right away. And uh, he was five foot five. He, uh, he's, he wore custom-made suits, custom-made shoes, silk ties. He was a very dapper guy, and he loved ladies, I think. And he learned to dance when he was 50, learned to drive when he was 47. He was so bad that he had to get a chauffeur. He had uh, this big car, at, I think, at 42nd Street when he was driving. And a, uh, the license plate was a special one, which he got through friends, 6AS, his initials. And the policeman stopped him and said, I think you should add another S to that plate. And then he decided he wasn't a driver and uh, and uh, had a chauffeur for the next 50 years or so. You mentioned that your dad liked the ladies, and in fact, he had a few mistresses, right? Well, girlfriends. I mean, I don't know if he had, uh, he looked for real long-term attachments. He just, he liked to be out, 
with people, and I guess he did have a few mistresses. Uh, I don't know. If, yeah, I guess he would call them that. Was and your mom aware of that? I don't believe so, but she became really withdrawn, and particularly once we left the Heights where all the structure was set up with a butcher and uh, vegetable store. She was a real home person and sort of artistic. She sewed very well, but once she got downtown to the Upper West Side, we lived at 75th Street, uh, she just lost her moorings, and she didn't go out much. She didn't speak to people. I mean, once a neighbor came in to see, show her friend how beautiful my mother's apartment was, and my mother wouldn't let them in because she felt they were going to steal her ideas. Was and, she diagnosed with a mental illness? No. No, she wasn't. She took, uh, uh, was always concerned about her health. She took lots of sleeping pills and... Uh, uh, and just worried in general. She had a, a daughter who died, and her brothers died uh, earlier in Europe with uh, the flu epidemic in about 1915 or 16. Your sister was what, something like seven she years old? She was seven, mm-hmm. and it was a year or so before I was born. So I was brought up. Actually, I, when I was five, I discovered uh, her ice skates and birthday cards in the closet, and I said, uh, what's this? And they said, oh, that's your sister. You know, she died when she was seven. So I had this expectation almost for a number of years that I would die too. I mean, you know, it wasn't, certainly they didn't mean it to be that way, but they didn't know exactly how to break it to a kid. And I had this sense that my father, this all-powerful person who I didn't see that much but seemed very much in the world, was able to keep everybody into this uh, make-believe that people lived till they were older, but they didn't really. They they died when they were very young. So I was uh, obsessed with dying somewhat, and that, I guess, looking back, it held me back. And, and it was really later on in life, as I found myself through writing, through working with teachers and writers, that I began to realize there was there, that I had some talents and and uh, had to make it my way. But it was, uh, you know, in some ways a long struggle. Your book includes a story about a night your dad came home and he joined you and a group of friends in a poker game. It was a Friday night and he sat down with you all. Can you share that story with us? Yeah. My father loved action, usually revolving around money. At work, he talked to his broker half a dozen times a day, interrupting a dress fitting or a meeting to find out how his stocks were doing. Once, when I was around 12, he came home on a Friday night just as my friends and I were in the middle of a poker game. The betting stakes were two and four pennies. My father sat down with us, joined the game, and bet the maximum on every hand. Within half an hour, he had cleaned everyone out. He gave us back all the money and added an extra five dollars. Then, getting up, he said, You still can't beat the old man, and went to bed. When my father went to the racetrack, he bet on long shots, often several in the same race. He'd sit at a table in the clubhouse having a sandwich and coffee with friends and getting tips from racing sheets and from acquaintances, someone who knew someone who knew someone who had heard from the vet which horses were healthy. At the last minute, right before the bell sounded, he'd place his bets, often adding an extra horse or two on a hunch. He got to know the ticket sellers and tipped them regularly, so he was able to arrange with some of them not to record his ticket number when he won big, thus avoiding some taxes. He gave large amounts to charity because he understood what it was like to be poor, but also because he liked the attention and praise he drew. Often the honoree at dinners to aid causes for which he'd raised money, he was critical of other businessmen who didn't feel the obligation to give back. In the 70s, my father became known in the dress business as the ultra-suede king. 
Ultra suede was a synthetic fabric that looked like suede but could be cleaned in a washing machine. It was a time when air conditioning was starting to be used widely, and women, particularly in the South, needed to cover their shoulders all year round. The company that made Ultra Suede rationed out a strict amount to its customers every month to keep the demand for it high. Everything my father produced in Ultra Suede flew out of the stores, and it drove him crazy that he couldn't obtain more. Finally, he began buying the fabric from other manufacturers who weren't as successful with it as he was. He paid them a premium, of course, so they could make a profit. But that gave him enough to fill orders from stores like Neiman Marcus, which kept begging for more of his ultra suede outfits. My father could never get enough ultra suede. It was like eating caviar, he said. As he grew more successful, he started going to four-star restaurants like Le Cirque. When I ate with him there, he insisted on betting each time on how many lumps of sugar were in the bowl on our table. He'd tell me to guess first, and then he'd say a number. Invariably, he won. It took me a year or two before I realized that the head waiter always whispered the amount to him beforehand. My father liked to bet on a sure thing. Once, when he was in his early 90s, we drove up 8th Avenue and passed the building on 38th Street where he'd been a dress contractor, begging for work from manufacturers. I wasted 20 years of my life there, he said, pointing to the building. He'd waited a long time to reach the limelight, and once he got there, he made sure to bask in it. Did you struggle to win your father's acceptance growing up? Uh, I guess I did, and it, it wasn't going to be in, in that he, I think he liked me, but he didn't understand uh, what I did, and there was no way that, uh, that he could. I mean, I could understand him because I grew up with him, but the kind of life I led, the friends I had, the ambitions uh, were not something in, 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 his, in his grasp, I think. Uh, you know, that I, I worked for a nonprofit group, you know, he'd always say, what is it you do exactly? And I would tell him, and then I'd write it down, but he couldn't explain it. So uh, he, he only understood for-profit, I think. That was, you know, he was in America, and he got off the boat in, in Florida originally, and he looked around, and he said, and, uh, this is a, 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 a wonderful country. If you work hard, you can make money here. And that was his philosophy. I mean, he was pretty well-educated, and he was very lively, but he, he put all his efforts into in, in, into making money. You say in the book that you grew up in search of a father figure to guide you, and you responded well to anyone who filled that role. Did he ever know that? That you were no. looking to other people as a father figure? No, I, 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 that wasn't the kind of discussion we would have. I think when someone is that strong and has you know, grown up in, a, I guess, circumstances that nothing interfered with that strength, it, it was he really didn't understand people who couldn't uh i mean he looked at me and he thought you know i was a nice looking guy that i had uh, came with a nice apartment i could get money in my pocket if i wanted to take out girls i could do whatever i wanted to do and i was kind of sulking around of course he didn't have a, a mother who who was you know pretty depressed and on his case and he he was brought up differently and i think he he really didn't understand that and it was only probably the last 10 years of his life that we got closer. I mean, we were, I was close to him and had fun with him, but uh, the last 10 years when he slowed down, then he realized I could help him go to the doctor. We could go, I could go out to dinner with him, and, uh, and we did have a good time, and I think he appreciated me, and we talked, but it still, still was on his terms. I, I, I never felt quite myself in a way that I felt in, in other aspects of my life with the other father figures I met. Do you have kids? I have, a, a, I have two. I have two marriages. I have a 
46-year-old and a 28-year-old. How different are you with them compared to how your dad was with you? I originally, I think, with my son probably had some of his shortness. And, you know, that's part of me. I didn't... Uh, I had to learn patience, but I, I do think I'm I'm a, a lot softer and and uh, trying to listen to what they do exactly and to encourage them. And it turns out my my daughter is is following me at Columbia in the MFA writing program. Not, not it wasn't something I pushed her, and she's a pretty good writer. And so we talk about that. And my son is actually on on Wall Street. He's a trader. Uh, and I never quite understand what he does, but I think it's with good spirit, and I make fun of myself with him, and uh, and I, I feel close to both of them, and, and, and some in a way perhaps that I, I wasn't uh, with my father. Your dad lived long enough to watch you grow up into a writer, to flourish as a writer. What did he think of you as a writer? Well, I, I think uh, he once came when I had something read at Symphony Space and selected shorts when it the first year, which is a long time ago. Um, and he did appreciate it there because there were a, it was a full house or people, and and they seemed to laugh at the right times in the story. And afterwards, he said to me, "Next to Chekhov, you were the best." And that's pretty good praise. I'll take that any day. It was a wonderful story of Chekhov's. I think he was a little uh, wary that I was writing personal things. And certainly the last two books, I've written things that I wouldn't have published, at least, in, in while he was alive. And I didn't mean to, you know, to get even with him. I, I really felt it was trying to understand things. But, he, you know, he wouldn't have liked probably some of the things. And I think there's a feeling, I've had it from a few friends or uh, sort of wealthier people or who who lead more formal lives, you know, wh- why would you write about this? Well, you write about very personal things, including how you lost your virginity to a prostitute in New York City. That's true. Uh, I hardly remember it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, a th- you know, I hung out with kids, uh, walked along Amsterdam Avenue, and uh, and we, we got a... a I, uh, I guess, I, I believe, a Puerto Rican prostitute in probably 1951 oh, or so. And uh, it was kind of sad. It's sad looking back, certainly. But it was something that, that kids did, the same way we sometimes cheated in, in school. You're right about that, too, in this yes. book, how you cheated in school and how you actually had an agreement with the school custodian who helped you cheat. Yes, it was quite... That was a tradition in the school of you know sort of the the tougher guys in a class would get together with him and give him five dollars a peach a piece and go in and and uh and get the exam papers at night and we were we were spotted because the lights were on and someone called at school the next day and then they figured out you know how could schrader get a ninety five in geometry and the only reason I got it was that I didn't know how to had to had to make myself get a lower mark. I had memorized the the answers. We we brought in a very smart kid uh, in the class for free, and he gave us the answers, or he figured them out. And you actually protected him, right? When you all got busted, you protected that kid. Yeah, we didn't tell on him, and he ended up at Yale. It was a quite an achievement for that school. And then actually, when I I don't think it's I'm not sure if it's in the uh, uh, in the book, but I when I went to NYU my freshman year. We had a one composition uh, could be a story that you made up. So I, from an, another friend at another college, took a story from the Horace Mann Literary Quarterly. It wasn't even a good story, and I handed it in, and I think I got a, a, 
a B minus. My friend got a B plus at his school. I guess we were harder school. And then in my junior year, uh, I, there was a writing teacher, and I took a, a class with him and started writing my own stories, which was a lot more satisfying than uh, plagiarizing. And you know, I think that was a pretty good lesson for me. And and I think the the week after I turned twenty, I wrote a story that. He then used in an anthology, uh, McGraw-Hill anthology, for f- used freshman English around the country. And I was uh, uh, in between Benjamin Franklin and, and John Ruskin. It was like winning at the track the first time. It was a bad lesson because I didn't publish again for 10 years. But it was, uh, I was quite proud of that. Um, and, and I actually had, they had originally put in a story of George Orwell's Shooting an Elephant, one of the great, uh, great essays of, of, of the century, but the publisher didn't want to use uh, uh, ones that had been seen in other books, so I, I replaced him. And there were questions after my story, which I didn't know the answers to. But there were freshmen at NYU uh, five or six years after I graduated studying my story, you know, of, of a person who had cheated with, with a plagiarized story. So I, I you know, I, I sort of. It's. I didn't think about it that much until until recently. What a what an unusual thing it was, and sort of, there is redemption in the world. I I think at least then. You're tuned to Cityscape on ninety point seven FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Our guest this morning is author Stephen Schrader. Schrader's new book, called Threads, More Stories from a New York Life, explores his childhood in Washington Heights, his strange relationship with his dressmaking guru father, and the road he took to becoming a published writer. While you were in college, you missed hearing Dylan Thomas speak, but you did rub elbows with Norman Mailer. Can you share that story with sure. us? Sure. Because I was so young when I started college, I felt I had all the time in the world. After classes, I hung out at the cafeteria drinking coffee and then went home to eat dinner with my mother. Many well-known writers were appearing in the university's lecture series, but I rarely bothered to go. In my freshman year, I missed hearing Dylan Thomas, who died the following fall. In four years, I managed to go to only two lectures— The first writer I heard was W.H. Auden, who gave a long, boring talk about writing lyrics for an opera. The second was Norman Mailer, who at the time had just helped to found the village voice. He was a lot more stimulating than Auden. Instead of reading from a prepared text, he responded to questions from the audience. At one point, he explained that he had modeled the structure of The Naked and the Dead, in which alternating chapters were from the viewpoint of different characters on Anna Karenina, I was startled to discover that writers actually had to learn their craft and could be influenced by others. I wanted to ask him how he had started writing, but I was too reticent to raise my hand. Years later, almost at midnight, in a paperback bookstore on the Upper West Side, I found myself standing next to Mailer. We were the only two customers. He stared at me with what I thought was hostility. This was right before he stabbed his wife, Adele. He seemed like a different man than I remembered from NYU. Whenever Bernard Malamud came to New York, a friend of mine and her husband would arrange a poker game for him. My friend was one of his former students. When she invited me over to play one evening, I was delighted. I admired Malamud's first book, The Assistant, for its warmth and its simple Yiddish-sounding rhythms. 
As it turned out, Malam had looked and talked as if he could have been one of my relatives. He came on like a self-assured, somewhat cynical businessman with a balding head and a thin mustache. For the first few hours, while his luck was bad, he said little and kept folding early. He refused to chip in for pizza since he wasn't going to eat any. Finally, when his cards improved, so did his spirits. By midnight, he had drawn a little ahead. It's time to turn in, he said with a laugh. I've got to get up early tomorrow and write great literature. And then this man, the man who had written The Assistant, was gone. Where, I wondered, had he left all his warmth and humanity? What is your advice for aspiring writers today, someone with a lot of stories who has yet to put them down on paper? Well, to do some things that I didn't do, which is to write a lot. I, I, I wrote and then I wouldn't write, you know, that my life got to be too much and I'd work at something. So I think write as much as you can, make it, try to write every day. And when I'm on, I, I sort of do that. And, and to read, I think I've always been a reader. I think that led me to uh, to writing, even when I... Uh, was this student who bribed janitors and plagiarized? Well, that was even uh, by then I was beginning to read more, but uh, uh, in, in school. But I, school was separate. That I didn't know somehow that you could find you could be enlightened in school and have literature that was fun. Uh, and I just was buying paperback books uh, in those days. They were a quarter, and they were. I remember the uh, Signet triple books, like The Naked and the Dead, were seventy-five cents. And I bought a book, uh, Good Reading, which recommended in uh, books from all ages and all locations, in, and it categorized them. And I mostly stayed with modern literature. And I would go down uh, to Brentano's after I moved downtown on, was at 48th and 5th, and then around the corner was the Gotham Book Mart, which was uh, really, you know, I just stumbled in there. It was a great old place. It doesn't exist anymore. And so I, I, I read, and I'm still a, a, a reader. I read all the time, and I, uh, and it's, it's a lot of fun to get books now. You can get them from different places. And, and then I give them away, uh, many of them, because I, I don't have room for all the books I have. In the book, you talk about two of your childhood best friends, Joey and Kenny. Can you read the story about those two characters? Sure. At the age of seven, my two best friends were Joey Goldman and Kenny Klein. Joey was thin and ethereal with straw-like blonde hair. He was a good athlete, but too thin and slight to have much power when he hit a ball or tried to tackle someone. There was something saintly about Joey. Walking down the street on the way to the candy store, he might bring up subjects like God or death in an offhand way, as if such things were constantly on his mind. Later, he'd offer to share his candy bar with Kenny or me. He was dreamy and absent-minded and exasperated his family. My mother said Joey was too good for this life. Kenny was straightforward and a good athlete, but without humor or lightness. Both of us courted Joey, sensing that he possessed a goodness we wanted to be close to. My apartment house was at 660 Fort Washington Avenue. Joey's, just up the street, was at 720, the next-to-last building before Fort Tryon Park. Kenny lived a few blocks away on Cabrini Boulevard, so at the end of the day, I usually ended up walking Joey home past my house up to his. We'd reach his apartment house, and then, unable to part, Joey would walk me home. And when we got to my building, I'd insist on walking him home again. There was always something more to talk about. But our mothers had dinner waiting, so finally, Joey would enter his lobby, appear at the living room window of his second-floor apartment, which faced the street, and wave goodbye to me. 
When I was eight, I went away to summer camp and wrote a postcard to Joey. Camp is okay, I said, then listed the batting order of our softball team, the Royals. It was my way of staying in touch with the neighborhood. I loved camp, but I loved my neighborhood even more. On my return at the end of August, I ran to the schoolyard of PS 187, right across the street from my house, kneeled down, and kissed the cement. Washington Heights was the best place in the world, and Kenny and Joey were my best friends. All the boys in Washington Heights were crazy about baseball. In the off-season, we played basketball in the schoolyard and tackle football on the lot next to the schoolyard. But baseball was king, and especially the Yankees. One year, Red Rolf, the Yankee third baseman, rented an apartment on Cabrini Boulevard. Player salaries were modest then, and his son attended PS 187. The boy was small and unathletic, but when I struck him out in a softball game, I felt I had vanquished his father. My friends and I dreamed of one day playing for the Yankees, even though we never played hardball since there were no dirt fields. My friend Kenny's father had gotten to know some of the Yankee players through his business as an insurance salesman. One day he arranged for Allie Reynolds to come to their house and sign autographs for Kenny's friends. Reynolds, then a star pitcher, was an impressively large man, part American Indian, and known as the Super Chief. Years later, Kenny himself was scheduled for a tryout with the Yankees while he was still in college, but during his junior year, a knee injury ended his baseball career. I envied Kenny for having a father who had been born in America and was acquainted with famous athletes. My father was from Poland. He had no interest in baseball or any of the sports I was familiar with and was never much home anyway. I hated his European accent. He knew jiu-jitsu and would sometimes lock his arms around my head and throw me to the ground to demonstrate the art of self-defense, but I was unimpressed. Why don't you take me to Yankee games, I kept pleading, like Kenny's father. Finally, he agreed to go with me. So one sunny, clear, cool Sunday in late September, we took a cab to Yankee Stadium and bought box seats behind home plate. We had a perfect view of the pitcher and could hear the smack of the ball in the catcher's mitt. That weekend, a couple of players, including Yogi Berra, had been called up from the Newark Bears, the Yankee Triple-A team. Yogi got a few hits and caught on with the fans right away. I loved being there. I tried to explain the rules to my father, but he was bored. A few times he closed his eyes. He worked long hours, and Sunday was his only day off. As the game progressed, the shadows behind home plate grew darker, and the air became chilly. We should have sat out there, my father said, pointing to the centerfield bleachers, which were still in the sun. You can't see anything from there. It's too far out, I said, exasperated at his lack of enthusiasm and his foreignness. You don't know anything. My father didn't answer. He sat patiently until the game was over. After the crowd had thinned out, we left and took a cab home. Is there any conversation that you didn't have with your father that you wish you did? Uh you're going to make me cry because <laughs> I remember once actually seeing a psychotherapist saying it at camp that I wished he understood. My brother was boxing, which my father understood, and he, he was a pretty good boxer where I was playing either baseball or basketball. I was a good athlete, you know, at 9 and 10 at any rate, and and I, you know, I wanted to get his praise, but he, as a, like most things, he couldn't follow that. Uh, I'd like to I suppose to let him know how much I really did appreciate him and 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 respect his achievements, and if there was some way to let him know who I was, perhaps more. I don't know how that would be. 
I guess he'd have to read these these books, and I'm not sure. Well, you know, I, I would hope that he would read them and say, "Well, it's good that you're doing." I think he'd be. I'm a stronger person. I feel at at this advanced age than I was. It took me a long time to get there, and I, I hope he would respect that and and understand that. Now, your mom tried to kill herself a couple of times. Yes. How did she die? Did she die of natural causes she did. in the end? Uh, the, she tried to take pills, and she did it uh, twice, and she just never got enough in there, and we'd rush her down to the hospital. It happened twice. Then she seemed to become resigned. She said, well, I, I guess I can't do that. I can't even do that. I'll just have to wait for it to come. But she was obsessed with dying. She would sort of make up some kind of poem about waiting for a calm, soft, dark place. Um, and and it would. she just really, her life was over. She, it just was everything that happened after that was extraneous for the last 20 years of her life. She didn't do anything. How long did your dad live after your mom died? Uh, it was about 12 years. And it took, you know, the first thing he said was, uh, I, I remember I slept at his house that night, and he said I could have been nicer to her. And I let him off the hook. I, you know, I said, well, you did the best you could. Now, let me ask you somewhat of a morbid question. When your dad passed, the New York Times put out their obituary, and the headline was, A King of Seventh Avenue Fashion. Have you ever thought about what your headline would be? <laughs> uh, uh, he wrote some good, honest stories, or he tried... <laughs> Well, there are plenty of good, honest stories in this book. Threads, more stories from a New York life. Stephen Schrader, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Stephen Schrader is the co-chair and former director of Teachers and Writers Collaborative. Schrader's latest book, Threads, More Stories from a New York Life, is published by Hanging Loose Press. He lives on Manhattan's Upper West Side, not far from where he spent a good chunk of his childhood. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.